Hi! Welcome back to Go Native, the business of native plants. My name is Mitzi Sosa and I am your host. Today we're actually going to do something a little bit different. I won't be your host. I'll still be here, but you know, someone else will be asking the questions this time. So we have Cami Donaldson with us, the director of our Native Plant Horticulture Foundation and also the Florida Association of Native Nurseries. We had the chance to sit in and listen into a interview that Cami did with Nancy Bissett. Nancy Bissett is the president and co-owner of, of The Natives Inc., a multidisciplinary firm offering a wide range of services that include consulting, restoration design, restoration implementation, and a wholesale nursery growing only native Florida plants since 1982. Apart from running her nursery, Nancy has developed techniques for restoring many upland communities including scrub, sandhill, and flatwoods that include site preparation, planting, direct seeding native ground covers, and weed control. As a botanist, she has assisted with monitoring research projects for the Nature's Conservancy, Florida Institute of Phosphate Research, and others. She's also performed various rare plant and vegetation surveys and also helped federal, state, and local authorities find and evaluate rare plant communities. As a developer of the native nursery, Nancy has also experimented with the propagation and growth of many native plants, including grasses, wildflowers, and rare species. So basically, Nancy does it all. All right, so without further ado, here's an exclusive listen to a conversation between Cami and Nancy. Okay, so my first question is, Nancy, aren't you originally from Wisconsin? Born in North Dakota. Oh, born in North Wisconsin. Dakota. Wisconsin, Colorado, South Dakota, Holland, Georgia, Louisiana, Missouri. How is it that you... <laughs> are these all the places you grew up in? These yeah, are- until I came to Florida, finally. And how did you end up in Florida? Well... You probably don't want to hear all of this. <laughs> we probably do want to hear it all. Actually, I was raised as a preacher's kid, which is why we traveled the first time. And then when I got married, um, we went to Florida for my ex-husband's final degree in Gainesville, actually. But also, I had a teacher in high school and college I went to a small Lutheran high school told you that you know I'm just giving you background and um, became the pastor of a church in Winter Haven and so that was one of the reasons we wanted to go to Florida so he he was my mentor in many ways anyhow and then my, my ex-husband traveled to different places to start up chemical plants. And finally, we ended back in Florida, and I've lived here finally over half my life, maybe two-thirds by now. No, half. You went to Florida Southern College. What was the motivating factor for going to Florida Southern? I really wanted to get a degree in horticulture, which I did. 
I also got a minor in biology, and I had in mind uh, to learn more about our native plants. So I, I went with a purpose. And how, I mean, when did you first become interested in horticulture? I mean, where, where did that start? What was the motivation for that? Horticulture, native plants, natural ecosystems, all of that, it always starts as a kid. And it started for me as a kid. We had a large, huge garden when I was growing up in Wisconsin. We, had, we lived in the country. And we also did a lot of traveling out to California, different roads. I was always the middle of the front seat person. That was when we had three people in the front seat. Front and center. It, it's all of that. It's picking the hickory nuts. It's picking the strawberries in the garden, et cetera, et cetera. It, and, and I don't think there's a single person interested in horticulture where it didn't start as a kid. Did you actually know about native plants? Was that a term known to you at that time? Mm, as a kid, probably not so much as my exposure to natural areas in general. I, I remember when we were driving, I would have a pretend camera or traveling anywhere to you know, visualize beautiful settings and even uh, dreamed about building a house where a stream would run through it and, and uh, how to make it this idyllic setting. So it was combined. It wasn't anywhere near what a old French garden would look like. It, it always had the natural aspects. How did the natives come about? Can you tell us a little bit about how you, and I think it was you and Bill, your second husband, mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. did you all, when and how and why did you all start the natives? And how did you pick the location? <laughs> or maybe you had already picked the location. Yeah, the location was where we lived. Um, the idea stemmed from Wanting, well, wanting to grow and use and find ways to restore natural areas. It all kind of came together. Part of it was wanting to help the mining industry uh, restore uh, natural areas back to, to the mining area. Uh, using them in landscaping. My husband was a landscape architect at the time. And we, we actually started the business before we were married. Uh, we were both living in the Winter Haven area. The nursery itself came just a little bit later. Uh, my husband found this beautiful five acres with two-thirds of it being beautiful hardwood swamp. And so he had that land. And so that was the beginning location. Over the years, we've added on acreage here and there. But yeah, it, it started, I guess it started as a dream. I did have a class at Florida Southern College that talked about how to plan a native nursery or any nursery, what needs to go in it. I did have that background. We both knew that our biggest shortcoming was 
our lack of monetary needs, planting, planning for anything that would actually make money. <laughs> and that's our problem to this day. <laughs> Almost 40 years later, I'm sorry to say, but it's the truth. That was not our driving ambition. So and this is one of those businesses that started with love first and, and not economic concerns. How to plan for a nursery, it, it almost starts, it usually starts somewhat haphazard. It's what you have and what you can build on. But over the years, I've strongly seeing other nurseries uh, start and how they built up. And, and I see a real contrast. Uh, most nurseries start as actually backyard businesses, which isn't bad. But however it starts, planning for the future, planning how you're going to expand, where, uh, what you need to do in setting up Everything from irrigation to buildings is, is important to think about way ahead of time. And we don't always have the luxury to do that. I do think that the most successful businesses that I see in nurseries are those that had a fair amount of capital to begin with. And we don't always have that luxury. But those that do seem to be the ones that have really taken off. When you look back at the work that you have done, and, and the thing that's interesting, of course, about the natives is that it is so multifaceted. I mean, there's the nursery, there was Bill's landscape architecture work. There's the kind of pioneering research that you've done and how to do different kinds of restoration. There's the consulting, there's educating others. Um, are there, like, if you had to point to two or three accomplishments that you think are the most important, that you're most proud of, what would those be? Oh, oh I, I think actually it's figuring out how to restore upland ecosystems and how to do it on a large scale and then also actually um, convert that more to urban areas. Um, and the biggest step was, <laughs> believe it or not, well, figuring out how to harvest the seed, but even before that, to come to the realization, the knowledge that uh, our major upland mass, which is wiregrass, can germinate from seed. Um, we were one of the first two to actually germinate them. So yeah, that was, I, I think that's the biggest area. And, and learning from each project, something new. Yes, but that's my biggest joy. Right. But the constant learning is also a challenge for a business. Because that probably means you're always running into things that weren't expected. And that the customer probably won't pay for. <laughs> <laughs> Hence this lack of driving force to make money. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's been the payback. And, and, and I hear things getting back to the nursery um, part of it. I hear over and over again, don't try to grow everything. Grow the ones that are um, marketable and, and even in the market already. And 
frankly, my goal has always been the opposite. I, I love the diversity and, and even equally important to me is to grow with genetic diversity within each species of plant that we grow rather than developing cultivars, whether they're named or not, and producing the same genetic information so they all look exactly alike and marketing them that way. I know that's the successful known route. I've always felt that part of our job is to educate people, um, not, not just about genetic diversity, but how things are so different in natural areas and they don't all need to look exactly like and behave exactly in the same way that there are benefits to that as well. That's good, Nancy. I'm glad you gave us that input. Um, I think, you know, one thing that's interesting to me that I've seen, it should be obvious, but I've slowly realized it over the years is how diverse this little industry is itself. There are the people who are trying to, you know, all these different markets. So growing plants for the functions they perform and the genetic richness that they contain for natural area restoration is a completely different thing than growing plants for the garden center that wants, you know, a shelf full of plants that all look the same and then... <laughs> And they keep looking the same <laughs> month after month or whatever. <laughs> and um, yeah. I'm not going to say that either. That, that's not necessarily bad. Do I'm not saying that that's bad, but it's a different mm -hmm. business. And there are actually many little businesses. I was really glad you brought up, brought up diversity. And, and we may have some redundancy here in my questioning and answers, mm -hmm. but I think that's okay. Because this is really important information that you're sharing. And, and uh, we want to get it in many different ways as yeah. possible. Yeah, before you hit me with that next question, I, I just, I wanted to add, you know, we, we talked about growing fewer species or lots of them. My um, thought pattern has always been, if it looks like a species that will be really useful, we need to market it. And I try to market it from our own business, but overall, I think these newer species need to be actively introduced to the market rather than just hoping somebody will buy them or take notice of them. Duly noted, madam. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been my approach. I've always, you know, tried to get them accepted. But yes, that's what FAN is for, too. <laughs> that's right. I agree. Thank you. I agree. Thank you. So I'm going to ask about diversity again. But before I do that, um, right. I wanted to ask, uh, in one of the introductions you recorded for us, you mentioned discovering a scrub mint and pineland yes. purple. So could you tell us a little bit about the scrub mint that you discovered? And give us the botanical name, please. <laughs> the scrub mint is Dicerandra modesta for modest. I think, you know, the common names are never very common but I think it's called uh, blushing scrub balm. Uh, we always just call them as dicerandras. And when we started our business, I, I was put in contact with and got a visit from a very old 
in his words, judge from a nearby town of Bartow. And so we went to visit him. And he gave me some of his very old, precious books, including J.K. Small's Southeastern oh. U.S. Floor, the great big book. He also gave me a bound manuscript called The Flora of Polk County. And uh, this was done for uh, somebody who was trying to get a doctoral degree. And there were only three copies of this manuscript. Uh, two went to um, herbarium libraries and the other one he had, which he gave to me. In it, he, this person had recorded the uh, presence of one of the uh, azalea species, but not the swamp honeysuckle one that's common here, but another one. And so my friend Steve said, well, if it's going to occur anywhere in Polk County, it needs to be on one of these uh, slope areas. So we ventured into an area only a mile from us, actually, or a little less as the crow flies, which seemed like the perfect habitat. And we started walking up this dirt road. And the first thing we saw what to us was obviously a dicerandra, but not one that anybody knew about. And we had to wait months because I think we saw this in March. We had to wait months to see the first bloom and realize what we actually had and that it was a new species. And then it took years for somebody to actually name it as a species, and it was named a subspecies, and now it's got full species status. Blushing <laughs> scrub balm. Very nice. Yes. yes. Good. That's a good little story. <laughs> what about the Pineland purple? Tell us about oh, that. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I have to speak somewhat negatively about a very well-known botanist, but that's all right. <laughs> Well, in those days, we did a lot of searching and collecting all over Central Florida. And we were in an area um, east of Lake Placid and uh, just wide open country. There were no fences, no, no trespassing signs like there are everywhere nowadays. And, and I came across this um, plant that looked very much like vanilla plant, Carpheferus odoratissimus. And, and that plant has an odor in the leaves, especially when they die. And, and they've been you know, collected for um, adding to tobacco and so on to make a more pleasant smoke. Um, but this one didn't have that. And the flower head formation was a bit different. And so we collected it, and I could see that it was something obviously different. So I took it to Dr. Wonderland over at the University of Central Florida, of South Florida, and, and I asked him what this was, and he said, well, it's Carpheferus odoratissimus, vanilla plant. And I said, no, it isn't. Explained why. And he says, well, yes, it is. And I said, no, it isn't. And he said, yes, it is. So that ended that conversation. 
I looked in my J.K. Small book that I got from Judge Wilson, and J.K. Small alluded to the fact that there may be another species of Carpheferus because he did notice something different about this. And the rest of the story gets very much complicated beyond that because we asked one um, botanist if he'd be interested in naming it. And he was, but he dawdled for years. And I mentioned it to another botanist and showed them. I said, there's even a place at the Disney Wilderness Preserve where there are five species of Carpheferous, all growing within a very small area, but each in a very distinct micro ecosystem. And, it, and it's a very apparent what they are. And, and uh, they looked into it. And, and then it became a race, actually, as to who was going to name this. Meanwhile, the first botanist was having chemical work done on it. And um, it indeed showed that the Odorotrisimus had a chemical that the Carpheferous subtropicanus, the one that I figured was different, had. And uh, so there was actually down to the months and weeks on who was going to name it uh, first, because whoever names it first gets it. And so the first botanist actually created his own publication, which is legal, and named it first. Mm -hmm. So I'm listed as an author, but because there was a, a chemist involved, um, it's now called Delaney at all, instead of listing me the authors. So if I ever find another species to name, which is unlikely, I do it myself with help. <laughs> Nancy, the natives was one of the first growers of native plants in Florida, and certainly among the first to grow a great diversity of those plants, and still today, one of the few growers that does grow a great diversity of native plants because restoration is a big part of your business. Certainly you're one of the few nurseries to grow the, the rarer or more unusual species. I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but did you decide to grow a variety, great variety primarily because of the restoration or that's something you just really are interested in? And, and how do you manage growing almost 200 different species? I mean, that's a lot to, to deal with. Well, our first focus was landscaping. My husband, he's now retired, but as a landscape architect, we really wanted plants that we could, so we could use uh, native plants uh, in the home and business landscape. And then Restoration kind of followed after. I, I keep thinking about a couple of projects that we have done and are working on now, even, even in urban-type landscaping or for parks construction. We, we wanted to have a really wide representation of what would occur in any community and not just have a handful of plants representing that. We, we did this at the uh, Archibald Visitor Center where we 
attempted to recreate examples of, of a number of ecosystems and at Bach Tower Gardens. And right now we're working on supplying plants for Bonnet Springs Park, which is a new park of many acres being developed in uh, Lakeland, Florida. And I, I was fortunate enough to be a consultant for the Sasaki people who developed the overall plan and actually was able to develop the plant list uh, for many of the areas. And they're doing a great number of, of native plant introductions. Um, and again, a lot of them as representation of ecosystems. For many of these projects, we're able to haul in a whole bunch of um, species that aren't normally used and, and get them out in the public view. That's great. Could you say again the name of the park and also the name of the firm that did, when you say the overall oh, plan, are oh. you talking about a landscape architecture firm? or? Uh, okay, the park is Bonnet Springs Park, and the firm is Sasaki. And Bonnet Springs Park is in Polk County. Yes, it, it is actually in Lakeland. Wow. And, um, I remember you talking about the gardens at Bach Tower and the work, the effort that you went to to get all these unique little plants <laughs> to include. <laughs> what, what are some of the things, what are some of the plants that you got in there that you're especially tickled to have planted there? Oh, so um, besides uh, doing a large sand hill, which was the first focus, uh, they also um, created a, designed a way to uh, filter water for the pond that has always been a feature up there. And so they created a wetland that would clean the water and, and that's dribbled back in a little stream back to the pond and was recycled. But uh, adjoining that, they also wanted a wet prairie and a small bog. So um, we were privileged to be able to grow the plants and plant both the wet prairie and the small bog. So it was uh, a chance to go out and grow a whole bunch of species we had never grown before and, and to be able to plant them out. Um, and that's where I used a lot of the sedges, which are a big part of wet prairie. We grew uh, pitcher plants, they're extremely slow growing. Oh, the the um, the white big white top sedge. Oh yes, that's so showy. Yeah, yeah. And of course there are a lot of wildflowers in that ecosystem too. So that was just pure joy. <laughs> growing plants for for um, both the bog and and the landscape. And, and then again, you know, I, I thought I had it pretty well figured out. Then all these surprises happen, um, like the fact that there are some plant species which are part of these ecosystems, but if they're allowed to run loose at the beginning, they tend to overwhelm it and they have to be kept in check and, and so on. I, I can't think of, of a single project where there wasn't a great deal of new things to observe and new challenges to meet. And management, land management, <laughs> always there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. So let's say that someone came along and they 
saw what you were doing and they thought, boy, that's for me. I love the idea of growing all these beautiful, diverse plants that need to be out there, that need to be used more, working with communities to restore and create in their urban spaces, places for these plants. How can I do this as a business? What, after all these many years, and I'm sure many mistakes as well as many successes, what would be some things that you might tell someone who wanted to follow a path similar to the natives? Hmm. What do you know now that you wish you knew then? Maybe the main thing would be a little bit more about business planning. So we we could actually uh, make a viable business where we didn't always seem to be on the edge and and uh, th- that takes a lot of forethought, um, good accounting, keeping a good tab on where money comes from, where it's going. In our case, we're always planning for new projects because our business is more oriented towards projects that often have a, a long build-up time and a long wait time and a longer time to actually receive money from. Uh, so in that sense, it's different from those nurseries that are growing for the open market. Mm-hmm. I do think, however, one advantage of us having so many different facets is that whenever there is a downturn in business, as happened in 2008, for example, we still had a lot of projects in the mix and we weren't dependent just on the construction business, the, the building community. Uh, we had a, a lot of work with government, nonprofits, et cetera, and, and longer-term contracts. So it, it's a different um, business plan than those that are just trying to meet the regular construction and home planting and, and uh, commercial planting businesses. So the Natives is one of our founding fan members and early nurseries. And you now have, you, you keep saying that you and Bill are retired, but I think no one believes that Bill or Nancy Bissett can actually retire. <laughs> They can perhaps just spend a little bit, little bit more of their time doing the funner projects or something. But you do have your daughter and son working in the business, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. are endeavoring to transition the business, which is a really difficult thing to do for any business. Um, figuring out how businesses will go on once the the founders are stepping back. Can you share with us a little bit about? what you've done to try and plan for a transition or to try and ease a transition and uh, how that's going. We're very fortunate because both Paul and Sarah have always been the best employees we've ever had. You know, they're self-motivated. They, they really enjoy what they're doing. And over the years, we've been able to share what we've learned um, in the case of Paul, who's in charge of the restoration business, he's built up a mountain of knowledge on his own, things that I don't know of. And yet, whenever he comes across something new, like a new plant, he brings it in to be identified. I'm still advising. Or if he's meeting a new little knotty problem on a project and he wants 
my take on it and how to present it to the client, I can do that. Uh, and, and the same with Sarah. Um, and Bill, of course, is still helping, uh, especially in the selling and and assisting Sarah, who is still just she's still part time. She still has a family to care for, but she is now managing the nursery and the business end, um, and is one of these remarkably well organized, efficient people who can get three times as much done as anybody else in the same time period. <laughs> Sounds like a great employee to have. <laughs> oh, no kidding. So, so in those respects, that part is still easier. So we're still working through, you know, the humps after almost 40 years of making a profitable business and keeping the money rolling in at some sort of an even tempo. Gotcha. Hard, I think, for probably any business, but especially maybe these, um, where we, our customers need so much education about why they even need to mm-hmm. be interested in what we're offering. <laughs> so <laughs> how would you advise uh, a young person who wants to be in business with native plants in terms of education? Do you think you're horticulture degree was really useful to you? The horticulture degree, the botany degree, which was also ecology, exposing yourself to as much as you can possibly learn in the natural environments, I think were all really useful. I learned most of my plants and what they can do and how they behave from going into natural areas and looking at them there throughout the year, over the years, how they behave differently from one time to the next. And I think I mentioned earlier about uh, monitoring projects. I monitored for the Disney Wilderness Preserve where they were doing wetland restoration just by filling in ditches and so on. Um, And going over the same transects there and, and on our restoration sites year after year and seeing how much they change, you know, trying to figure out why, what's why, why is this plant behaving differently this year than it did last year? What's the difference? Yeah, it it all accumulates over time. Yeah, and I'm thinking, boy, that knowledge is all in your head. (laughs) (laughs) What we really need to be focused on is that device that we put on your head when you go to sleep at night that sucks out all this information and translates it into some form that the rest of us can <laughs> get it. Well, I, I still think the easiest way to get it is to, is to observe it yourself, but um, that's right. me. Yeah. yeah. So I do have to say this. There's a lot of information in books that is not online. You can't get everything from the internet. At, at some point, I think we have to confi- like make maybe work with Isabella to make like an article of like books from Nancy's bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nancy, that's all the questions I have for you today. <laughs> Well, I appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) 
One of my absolute favorite things about Nancy is whenever we have a Zoom meeting with her and we're talking about uh, plants or something completely new, if you have a question for her that she's not sure what the answer is or if she wants to make sure she gives you the right answer, she will turn around and behind her there's this huge bookcase and she will know exactly which book to pull off and open to the right page and she will tell you word by word what the book says and that was that was a comment that we were making there but that is what we have for you today i hope that you enjoyed this time with nancy and cami and as always visit our website at nativeplanthort.org and keep an eye out for even more content coming your way and that is it and we'll see you next time thank you Thank you.